Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Today on the show, we'll be exploring an orifice we've really neglected. It's the hole that bloats, breathes and masticates. It receives both sustenance and kisses. And it's how I'm speaking to you right now. I'm talking and we will be chatting about the mouth. All things dental, lingual and buccal with our two special guests. Professor David Weisenfeld will be starting us off on our oral adventure. David is an oral and maxillofacial surgeon and director of the head and neck tumour stream at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. He is also lead in research and education in the head and neck tumour stream at the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre and he has held multiple significant leadership roles at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, the College of Surgeons and other august institutions. David will be chatting with us about some of the common oral pathologies that he sees in his day-to-day practice. Phoebe Kippen is a physiotherapist with a particular interest in how the body manifests stress, pain and trauma. She has a postgrad certificate in pelvic floor physio and a special interest in the temporomandibular joint or the TMJ as it's known as. Uh, she works privately in both a women's health clinic and also in a large sporting clinic. Phoebe is on a first name basis with all your body's pain points and let me tell you she can push them all at will. And through some weird kind of physiological magic, she makes the hurt go away. She'll be telling us how she does this and why TMJ pain in particular can be so debilitating. Joining us will be Dr. G-Spot, media star and NHMRC fellow, as well as Nurse EpiPen, star of Stage and Spleen. Did you get that, Stage and Spleen? So stick with us, (laughs) with me, Dr. Mel, and our team for what's sure to be an orally fixated show. Now, good morning, uh, Nurse EpiPen. Now, ordinarily, we'd be having a sting here with doctor, doctor, but um, I forgot to line that up. Apologies. Nurse EpiPen, how are you? Good morning. I'm very good. You rode in today, didn't you? I rode in today. Tell me, what was it like, the riding? It was really good. It was uh, coolish and warmish and a bit overcast, but it was lovely. Fantastic stuff. Good morning, Dr G-Spot. Good morning, Dr. Mao. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you and there's no echo and I'm so happy about that. Brilliant. Can I say you outdid yourself this morning with your introduction, Dr. Mao? Were you up all night writing that? <laughs> As I like to say, red lights. Red lights on the way into the studio. I'm scribbling away quickly. Um, very now, impressive. Now we, now I'm we did feeling ac- very inspired. We did actually confirm that you are an NHMRC fellow, which is no small thing. Just tell, just Why don't you tell listeners what that actually means in the real world? It means I was one of the lucky people to get money from the, the government, in particular the National Health and Medical Research Council, to, uh, to do work on body image research mm. is my particular area of expertise. Mm. And uh, you have told us about some of the research you've been doing, particularly with your uh, uh, website and the, t- the bot that responds to people as yes. they type things in. Yes. What's the name of the bot again? Kit, Kit the Chatbox. Kit, 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 Kit the Chatbox. And I've actually tried it a few times. It's quite remarkable. And you're, you're publishing on this, aren't you? 
Yes, yes, we already have one article in the Journal of Medical Internet Research and it actually got a prize recently from the Society of Medical Health Research. So we were very proud and and Kit was very excited. What does Kit do when Kit gets excited? Um, oh, lots of emojis, exclamation marks, yeah, you name Pixelates it. Pixelates a lot. <laughs> it just goes off, exactly. <laughs> As, given you're, not only are you an NHMRC researcher, you're also a radiotherapy triple R researcher and you've been scouring <laughs> the research literature, haven't you, this week? Can I say that the triple R role is a bit less official than the NHMRC <laughs> one, but I do really love that role. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to talk about how we use our smartphones. And I'm going to involve Dr. Mal, practice and nurse EpiPen. Mm-hmm. So like any millennial, I spend way more time on my phone than I'd like to admit. And I wanted to know about you guys, Dr. Mal, nurse EpiPen, how long do you think you spend on your phones? Mm, uh, there is a monitor on the phone that tells me how much time I spend on it. But I do everything on it. I do emails and I do the news in particular and a bit of Instagram. So I did post about this show yesterday. So we've probably got quite a few listeners tuning in. Uh, uh, Two hours a day? Three hours? Get real, I reckon. More like ten. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) Two hours a day. What about you, Dr. Mal? Well, I, I don't actually know. The answer would be too much. And it's coincidentally, at the st- last week I just said to myself, after dinner, like 7.30, I'm putting the phone in our kitchen nook and I'm not looking at it again. And it was really, really hard. But, man, the evening just opened up. I've read a couple of books. <laughs> you know, I've done stuff around the house. And it's not stuff – I didn't need to look at my phone after seven. So way too much is my answer. And something you're, you're trying to change by the sounds yeah, of it yeah, as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. What would you say if the time you spent on your phone, particularly on different apps, could actually identify you as a user? The pa- your pattern of usage can actually identify you. What would you say? I'd say, yeah, because you're, you're going to tell me it can, so I'm going to say, yeah. I am. I... <laughs> oh, definitely. Very, very true. So I'd like to tell you very quickly about a paper led by Dr. Heather Shaw, published in Psychological Science, showed that a time a person spends on different smartphone apps is enough to identify them from a large group of people in more than one in three cases. I'm going to come back to that one in three quickly later. But what they did was they fed 4,680 days of app use data into statistical models. And each of these days was paired with one of the 780 users, such that the model learned to predict people's daily app use patterns. And they tested whether this model could predict uh, whether or identify an individual user. Um, when when the data was anonymous and the model was right a third of the time so you might be thinking that's okay but not super duper impressive Mm. but what it actually means is that these models are making a prediction based on who it thinks it belongs to and it can actually shortlist candidates for you from a larger group so while it might not be able to identify the specific user it can shortlist and I'm just wondering where you guys think this could be useful this kind of identification by app use well it's gonna somebody's gonna try and monetize it so (laughs) it'll identify you and send you ads for I don't know tennis shoes or something or Money? Advertising? For sure. Any, anything else, Nurse EpiPen? What do you think it could be useful for? 
targeting you for shopping, targeting you for music, for your what you do. Um, Very yeah. true. I love the cynicism here. I got to say, it's like it's just a money making venture. But what it might actually be useful for, and what inspired me was uh, law enforcement. So in investigations seeking to identify a criminal's new phone from prehistoric knowledge of their phone oh, use, they can yeah. narrow it down to the oh. suspect. So isn't that exciting? It's like our very own digital fingerprint right. is our phone use. And you don't even have to be logged into your apps or anything like that. It is literally just your pattern of usage is very, or well, rather, unique to you. So if they know that, say, serial killer A looks at the weather, then his Gmail, then his bank account, then his whatever. That's right. Then triple R. Yeah, <laughs> Radiotherapy, yeah. yeah. And so then they think, oh, he's on the loose somewhere. We'll just look for everybody that's done those things and that'll narrow down the search. Yeah, but, exactly. But also yeah. the police mm. find criminals through where their phone pings. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is such a useful tool in, in so many ways. And I think you guys touched on a bit how it could be potentially, I suppose, used in a more nefarious way of potentially breaching privacy. And I think this is where this is such a difficult area. It can be so useful, but also can be used for nefarious things too. Nefarious. So I am nefarious. Exactly. So nefarious. I've got an interesting nefarious. point fact that because um, we have a health app, a spleen health app, mm. and mm. the TGA in November last year brought um, a regulation that you now have to have your apps dis- um, very strictly cover the privacy issues that could be involved mm. in the apps. So mm. the, t- the government, the TGA, the Therapeutics Government Authority has, uh, yeah, Clamp down on apps, health and apps. So the bottom line there is mix it up when you open up your apps in the morning. Don't go for weather first. <laughs> That's what I'm going to try and do so those advertising people can't get me. I'm going to open up, I don't know, Wordle. And, and Wordle. the law enforcement people. Hey, too, Dr Mao. You of mentioned course. an anonymous always, serial killer there. That's right. I'm always <laughs> evading them. Hey, um, I've got something interesting to tell you about. Do you know that old kind of idea that your life flashes before your eyes just before you die? Well... This may actually, actually be dinkum. So people who've had near-death experiences and then come back to life have said, look, when I, you know, just as I was dying, I kind of, you know, felt I had this panoramic view of my life. Um, you know, it was kind of this transcendental feeling and all the great memories and memories came flooding back and then kind of like you brought me back to life, resuscitated me and I came back into the room. Well, interestingly, there's an article in the Frontiers in Aging Neuroscience Um, which has just looked at that. And it was a serendipitous discovery where um, some neurosurgeons, in fact, there were 13 researchers on this paper uh, in Canada. They had some electrodes, like a lot of EEG electrodes attached to a a gentleman's head. And he was being monitored because he had epileptic seizures following a traumatic incident. He had, uh, I think, bilateral subdural hematomas. And so they were looking at his brain uh, pattern whilst he was in bed recovering from an operation closely monitoring his EEG patterns. And most unfortunately, this chap died uh, from a cardiac event. His heart stopped beating. So they were, uh, the researchers were able to capture, just serendipitously, you know, just because of this incident, they captured all this very, very rich brain activity data whilst uh, he was dying. And what they found was 
there was a very discrete and distinct change to those brainwave patterns. And for those that don't have a PhD in brainwaves, there are all these different brainwaves. There's alpha, beta, gamma, theta, delta. And we know by the certain combination of those brainwaves when certain parts of the brain are active. And what this particular research showed was just in the 30 seconds um, as he was um, passing away, that brainwave changed to a very, very specific pattern which seemed to indicate that he was accessing deep memories, um, particularly from his hippocampus and other, and other parts of his brain. So it may be that he was actually um, having that experience of his life flashing before his eyes now we don't know if that's true or not because obviously the, the gentleman passed away but it certainly is a very strong indicator that that is indeed possible and that can give some comfort to relatives and people who are sitting next to the person who's who has died or dying that they had this memory of their life flashing before their eyes and i thought that was pretty amazing and again serendipitous research that uh, that um, came out of that. So that's in the frontiers of ageing neuroscience. And we'll put that up. EpiPen's our social um, organiser. She'll put that up on our webpage, on our, what do we have? Instagram, socials? Instagram, whatever. Instagram. Read the article. It's really, really interesting. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. We have uh, Phoebe Kippen, who's a physiotherapist and the wonderful professor extraordinaire of oral surgery, Professor David Weisenfeld, um, who is an oral surgeon who is going to tell us a little bit about um, a few things about oral conditions, cancers in particular, but let's go right back to the beginning, David. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into oral surgery? It seems like it might be an interesting pathway. Thanks very much, EpiPen. I started my academic career as a student in 1971, decided to study dentistry, finished dentistry in the mid-70s, and whilst I was on the pathway to a career in public health dentistry, I was approached by a senior student who sent me down to Prince Henry's Hospital, because if I turned up tomorrow morning at 9am, I'll definitely get the job, and I did get the job, and then started my training in oral and maxillofacial surgery. From dentistry. So it's just opportunities that crop up and walk you through open doors. Mm. Very interesting. I I call that the chaos theory, that you never know where you're going to head. Some things just come to you out of the blue and it takes you down a completely different pathway. So so tell us um, a little bit about some of the oral cancers that you see and in particular in young women that you were telling us about. So my roles have changed over the years and you start off as a specialist surgeon, you try to do everything you can do and in time you, your interests change. My interests gravitated through trauma, through facial deformity and now I'm nearly exclusively involved in head and neck cancer through my jobs at Royal Melbourne, Peter Mac and the VCCC. We treat a lot of patients with oral cancer. 
and tongue cancer has becoming a big challenge for us, both in case numbers and in emotional resources, because we are seeing more and more young people with tongue cancer, particularly women who are non-smokers and non-drinkers. We've had research on the subject and sadly our non-smoking, non-drinking cohort of patients have a worse outcome than those who are historical group smokers and drinkers. Smoking mm. in the community is plummeting, mm. and, but people did smoke for the last 30 or 40 or 50 years and they, it starts to catch up with them. Mm-hmm. So we do still have the incidence of older males, particularly females less so, who present with tongue cancers. And why do you think younger women, non-smokers, non-alcohol drinkers are presenting with these cancers? What's your thoughts? Well, we don't have an answer, I'm sorry. We have looked at the role of human papillomavirus in tongue cancers and Human papillomavirus is involved in oropharyngeal, which is the back of the tongue, the throat, the tonsils, cancers, through sexual transmission. Human papillomavirus is definitely involved in cervical cancer, in females, and in anal cancer. But we didn't find any relationship with oral cancer. So the tongue's got two parts, the front tongue and the back tongue. The front tongue is called the anterior two-thirds. That sits in your mouth. And the junction between the front tongue and the back tongue, which sits in the back of the throat, is called the circumvallate papillae, which are little mushrooms that grow there. And those little mushrooms are the taste buds at the back of your oral tongue. And the tissue at the back tongue is very different tissue. And it's similar to tonsil tissue. So a lot of lymphoid infiltrates. Mm -hmm. And do you have any understanding about the Gardasil vaccine, which is to to protect young men and women and going forward from um, the herpes infections? Do you think? Human papillomavirus rather than herpes. Yeah. And it's expected that probably over the next 30 years that oropharyngeal cancer that is related to HPV will diminish, just as cervical and the others will diminish over time, particularly since the vaccination of both girls and boys. And that was a major platform of the Australian Head and Neck Cancer Society Mm. when I was president earlier in the decades to implement that for boys as well as girls. Mm-hmm. David, um, I was looking through the New England Journal of Medicine, which I occasionally do, and thumbing through their pages, and there was an interesting article just recently about the prevalence of uh, HPV, human papillomavirus-induced uh, throat cancers, um, becoming more prevalent than HPV... Um, induced uh, cervical cancers and beca- and, uh, and uh, the the reason and it was in males particularly with the, with the throat cancers and the suggestion is obviously that Gardasil the vaccine has made a huge difference to that do you see many of these uh, can I mean do you, do you see a, a sex differentiation um, between those cancers uh, those 
back of throat cancers in males and females? There is a differentiation. Yeah. I'm not personally involved in treating oropharyngeal cancers. Right. The majority of patients with oropharyngeal cancers undergo radiation or chemo radiation right. for treatment, depending upon the size of the tumour. And there is a new and evolving role for robotic surgery if the tumours are small and the neck disease is small because these cancers spread or metastasizes the technical term into the lymphatic glands of the neck and if patient present, patients present with large metastatic deposits then they're not suitable for surgery because you'll never get it out cleanly. Right, right. So but there, there are differences and the female reductions is probably related to an earlier implementation of the vaccine mm. for FEMA. Mm. Mm. Um, so, David, the, for the people... The prediction is it will diminish. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it will take 30 years yeah. in our society. Mm. Mm -hmm. Now, other societies where they don't offer free vaccination for boys and girls that are 11 years old, uh, well, it'll be different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it won't diminish worldwide. Yeah. Um, so, David, for people that are listening and also your hosts... Um, what are the signs of um, some funny tumours in your mouth? What, what should people be looking out for? Bleeding from the mouth, an ulcer or sore. With tongue cancer, commonly patients will say it's uncomfortable, it's a bit burny in certain spots and they develop a sore on the side of the tongue and they think nothing of it and, oh, it's probably just I bit my tongue. Oh, it could have been that hot chilli I ate the other day. And it goes on and goes on and it gets bigger. Eventually they end up with speech disorders mm. or swallowing disorders once disease is advanced. And we have looked at presentation patterns and I've done two cohorts of presentation patterns 20 years apart and the general medical practitioners and general dental practitioners over that 20-year period became more astute at mm. early diagnosis because the key is early diagnosis, pick a tumour when it's small, treat it when it's small, your chance of survival and cure is much better. Mm. Whereas if someone comes with half their tongue involved with mm. cancer, mm. your chance of cure plummets. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if you've read Stanley Tucci's latest book called taste i think it is um so and i if you if you're reading it or want to read it um uh block your ears because i don't want to um get be it you know spoil the ending but he spends stanley tucci the actor uh spends all almost all of this book lovingly lovingly describing growing up in an italian ha uh, household and family in america and how his parents would cook these most sumptuous meals. And then he goes on to talk about how he, his life is really about food and tasting food and cooking food and talking about food and writing about food. And this book is just magnificent. It just makes you hungry reading it. And the last couple of chapters, you know, block your ears if you don't want to hear this, um, if you're reading the book, he describes having this sore, something sore in his mouth. Just something sore and he couldn't figure it out and he let it go and he let it go. And I think then he saw a dentist and um, they... They said something, um, and then he went to another dentist, and I think this is the story, and then they said, well, look, you've got a, 
a tumor. I think it was a, um, a, a tumor of the submandibular gland, perhaps. I can't remember exactly. And he had to undergo chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and so forth. And for a long time, he couldn't, you know, food didn't taste right. It didn't, uh, he, um, you know, he couldn't chew properly. He had to have a, um, you know, be fed in a particular way. And it took him, I think, a year or two to recover. And it was so much a part of his life that it, that it, you could just see how much it impacts you to have an oral tumour. I mean, it's not just, oh, I've got a tumour in my mouth. It's, it's, you know, eating is so much a part of our life. What I find fascinating um, is also, David, how you approach these patients with a multidisciplinary approach. So would you like to speak to the people on your team in that group? So we have two teams running, one at the Peter Mac and one at the Royal Melbourne. They work cooperatively. They have slightly different patterns of referral. And Royal Melbourne has a high incidence of oral cancers, whereas Peter McCallum has a higher incidence of oropharyngeal, higher incidence of cutaneous cancers around the head and neck. And the multidisciplinary team reflects that an individual cannot provide all the care required. Mm. So we have multiple doctors. I'll put surgeons first because I am one. And the surgeons include oral and maxillofacial surgeons ear, nose and throat surgeons and reconstructive plastic surgeons. There are some centres in the world where one person does it all or one team does it all, but I think that without the richness of diverse opinions, Mm. they can't provide as good a service. We have physicians of various types involved in the diagnostic, such as pathologists, radiologists. We have Physicians who are medical oncologists, radiation oncologists who provide different treatments, they Mm. all have to be experts in their fields Mm. and they do bring a breadth to the team and the ability to identify what's really needed for these people. And we have a major contribution from Allied Health, Mm. speech pathologists, dietitians, physios, prosthetic technicians, and they can bring opportunities for people as well. Mm, so multidisciplinary care is the key mm-hmm. and it has to be supported by the hospital because it's quite intensive of labour mm-hmm. and it's quite intensive of physical resource. Mm-hmm. So you need a lot of rooms if you're going to see these patients in a multidisciplinary mm-hmm. manner. And it's acknowledged as the proper way to behave. Thanks, David. Dr. G-Spot here. I'm really enjoying hearing all about this. This is such a new area for me. And I wanted to ask about prosthetics for after you've, say, taken away a large area of the tongue, are we able to offer people anything to to replace the tongue in any way? So it's a double-answered question. Firstly, the tongue itself. And secondly, the other parts that sometimes are involved with the cancer. So the tongue itself, once you reach a certain volume of tongue removal, my threshold is probably getting to a quarter of the whole tongue. If you're at a quarter of the whole tongue, you definitely need a reconstruction. If you're an eighth of the whole tongue, maybe you can go without a reconstruction. The typical reconstruction is a muscle and skin flap which is taken from the forearm or taken from the side of the thigh. 
Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. David, David, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You take a bit of muscle from another area and you transplant that into the mouth. Yes. With I mean, the that's, skin. Wow. Sorry, I just wanted to underline that. Wow. So, and that goes where the tongue was. Correct. Wow. Sorry, you keep going. I'm just, wow. That's a, okay. You keep going. Sorry. So it depends on the size of the defect, what type of flap you pick. The, the thigh flap is better for a large defect, the forearm for a smaller defect. Uh -huh. And if the patient is obese, then <clears> it makes it more difficult for a, a thigh flap because mm -hmm. there's a lot of fat in the mm -hmm. tissue and you can't take the fat out because then you lose the blood supply. So there are lots of decisions to be made. Within our centres, plastic surgeons normally do that procedure for us. So I would finish operating around 12, 12.30 and the plastic surgeon would take over and do the reconstruction. And we've got two very strong plastic surgery teams. If it involves other tissues, such as the tumour is attached to the jaw and you have to remove part of the jaw and you have to remove part of the teeth, well, yes, there are prosthetic issues, but tongue itself, there are no prosthetic issues. And if you remove the whole of someone's tongue, which no one ever wants to do, but sometimes you do, then the functional outcome is very poor. Mm. So you end up just making a trough. And the trouble with doing that in such an advanced disease, particularly if it extends posteriorly, is it starts to interfere with the patient's ability to protect their windpipe. Mm -hmm. So then food goes into the lungs and that's a desperate situation. Mm -hmm. So complete excision of the tongue is hardly ever contemplated. Mm. Um, so, David, if you're a young, non-smoking, young, not drinking 30-year-old who presents to you with one of these <clears throat> cancers, and I know it would be dependent on the pathology of the cancer, but what's the prognosis? What is there? Is there some good treatments and we're thinking, I know you've discussed your team, but what, what's the prognosis? So the figures from Victoria, oral cavity cancer, 2015, there was a 60% male five-year survival rate and a 70% female. Mm -hmm. Patients who have complete excision of the tumour and undergo a full course of treatment are likely to be cured. Mm. Good. Yeah. Patients who don't complete the treatment, don't have adequate surgery are unlikely to be cured. Those that don't have the radiation that's recommended, unlikely. And the part that troubles me a lot is that we have patients that we think we've treated extremely well. They have good surgery with good margins around the tumour, so you don't leave any behind. They have a neck dissection, which takes away the lymph glands in the neck that are involved. They have their radiotherapy. And then they come back and their cancers recurred for less than two years and we lose them. Mm. And we Very don't sad. know why. And my major thrust at the moment is to understand why. You are listening to uh, 3RRR Radiotherapy. This is uh, Dr. Mal with Nurse EpiPen and Dr. D. Spot. We're speaking with Professor David Wiesenfeld about his specialty, which is head and neck tumours. He's an orofacial and 
facio maxillary surgeon. I think I've got all that right. Um, and started off working, started off training as a dentist and then got into this particular area. David, just in terms of those outcomes, you said that uh, women tend to have a 70% five-year survival rate from the, their cancers generally and, and men 60%. This is, or, this is oropharyngeal cancers. Why the difference? Is it that women present earlier or is it a hormonal reason? What's the difference for that 10% um, disparity? We don't know the answer, but I think it's about presentation. Yeah. That's all comers. All covers, yeah. comers, oral cancer, not oropharyngeal. Oh, oropharyngeal is a separate group of tumours. Mm. Right. So, so I'm focusing in my answers on oral. Oral, sorry. Oral. So, David, I think our takeaway take message for listeners would be if you notice something, something in your mouth bleeding, something unusual, um, I think I would go to my dentist first and I think they must be the ones that pick up a vast majority of these tumours. So oral hygiene, oral care and a next stop would be your GP. Is, was, would, and would that be your advice? Yes, probably 60% of the patients are referred by dentists and 40% via GPs. And one of the problems with dentistry today is it costs a lot to go to the dentist, mm -hmm. whereas you can see your GP without mm -hmm. very much expense. So I would say see your GP or dentist at your early convenience. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. And if it doesn't get better after two weeks, you need to see a specialist. So the rule is any ulcer, sore or lump that doesn't resolve within two weeks that you can't explain why is it there needs a biopsy. Um, take a sample. Uh, you know, uh, 30 years ago when I was at medical school, um, we didn't spend a lot of time in the mouth. I mean, you know, we learned about the liver, the spleen, the heart, you know, um, what other organs are there? Kidneys, a um, bit about the brain. Um, but we really didn't spend a lot of time in the mouth. And um, I would presume and hope it's changed nowadays. But um, certainly uh, good advice. I'd probably try and see my dentist or GP, you know, if anything's in my mouth for more than a, a day or two, <laughs> I, um, I'd want to get that checked out. Now, David, if people want more information, is there, are there any resources online where they could check stuff out? Head and Neck Cancer Australia mm -hmm. has got a website which supports patients with head and neck cancer. Right. It's based in Sydney, started as an organisation called Beyond Five. It's a charitable organisation. And they have lots of information. Victorian Cancer Council has lots of information, has booklets. And Royal Melbourne and Peter McCallum websites have got pages about head and neck cancer. Fantastic. Now, David, we're going to ask you to hang around because coming up after the break, we'll be speaking with Phoebe Kippen, who's a physiotherapist specialising in the mouth area. As you said, uh, physio is an, an important part of the multidisciplinary team. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. We are joined with Phoebe Kippen, physiotherapist, who has specialised in the, the mouth and also the pelvic floor. Phoebe, how did you come to, I mean, they're two kind of polar opposite ends of the body. How did you come to specialise in those areas? Um, it's a, one of the classic stories. If you find something that 
affects your life, you end up ending up specialising in it. But I actually started my journey with TMJ um, from my honours back in science. I ended up doing a research project in developmental biology and the hormone that I happened to be looking at also we were looking in testicles, but it also had an implication for the development of the precursor to the jaw, which is called Meckel's cartilage. And so I had this sort of love affair with the jaw from a very early on in my sort of scientific career. Let's backtrack a bit. The, the, the hormone that's responsible for the testicles is also the same hormone that's responsible for the jaw? Yeah, so there's this particular hormone which um, is one of the drivers for the stem cells that sit in the testicles that then form sperm later on during maturation. Yeah. Um, and it's now, you know, there's some really good evidence to show that it has um, a role in palate formation and Neckel's cartilage, which is the precursor to the sort of structure of the mandible. But it also has a role in the sort of topography of teeth. So this particular hormone, like most hormones, does lots of things around the body that we just didn't know until people started to really look at it. Wow. So this particular hormone got you interested in the face and the, the jaw and the, and the mouth and stuff. And so then you went on to yeah. do physiotherapy, obviously, and you've, you've really focused and specialised your practice, as I said, in two areas. Tell us about the sorts of problems that people would come to you with regarding their temporomandibular joint? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think I like to look at people as a holistic view. So I think a lot of the things that people come to me for pelvic floor work um, actually are very common in terms of why they also come for TMJ. Pain is a big one and how the body responds to pain or history of pain and how it remembers that feeling often is translated into different structures in the body. So, you know, one thing I always sort of say to people that are trying to understand this is I do a little experiment. So we'll have a try of it now with everyone. Mm -hmm. But I want you to imagine a time in your life where you've been incredibly stressed. So it might have been driving into work for a really important meeting and you're stuck in traffic behind a tram that's broken down and you're just going absolutely mad. Mm. Or it might have been during a period of time where there was a lot of emotion or mm-hmm. things were going on at home. Mm-hmm. And now I want to see, just to really immerse yourself in that feeling. Mm-hmm. Now unclench your jaw. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. Oh, my goodness. So my jaw was like tightly real- clenched. Wow. Yeah, it's a really common thing that stress um, relates huh. to how we hold tension in our muscles and our body remembers the feeling of stress wow. and often goes back to that sort of homeostatic position of where those muscles are, have been in the past. Wow, that's amazing. So, uh, you know, when you said about how the body remembers stress, I was thinking of that Van der Kolk book. Um, was it The Body Keeps Score? Is that the, I think that's the name of the book, which has been on a New York yeah. Times bestseller list. And I heard him being interviewed. And it's exactly what you're saying. You know, pain gets remembered in different ways and stress and trauma gets remembered by our muscles in, in really kind of common ways that you can try and tease out. Um, EpiPen. Yeah, I... Oh, you go ahead. Go ahead, Sorry, EpiPen. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Guests uh, are more important. I, I mean... I I always think about the body body as being a really clever computer. Um, Functionally, it's a binary computer. It has two settings. It's either there or it's not. And it's really good at remembering past history of what it's done, but it's not so clever clever at adapting 
or predicting the new sort of situation. So it will always go back to where it was versus where it's going. But that means we have to be smarter in terms of treating it and changing where it's at. Mm -hmm. So I was talking to my physiotherapist yesterday (laughs) and in Pilates, in fact, in a clinic. And one of the other physiotherapists said to me, was I aware that the number of people clenching and biting their teeth um, went up nearly 60 to 70% during COVID. So people were it's, going to the dentist, yeah. finding they were grinding their teeth and having jaw issues during COVID compared to pre-COVID, which would be about 20% of people would have that issue. What do you say to that? Yeah, it's... Yeah, it's been really common. I've seen the same thing across my practice. I've definitely seen an increase in terms of musculoskeletal conditions associated with the jaw. Um, I treat the jaw in terms of any other joint in the body. I look at it sort of from what it's doing. So um, often we have associated issues with load. So people have things like arthritis or they have joint wear and tear because they're loading a joint repeatedly or they don't have the muscular structure around the joint to be able to compensate for pain or dysfunction. And the TMJ is functionally the same thing. It's a joint, but we need it for things that we do constantly. So anytime you go to breathe or yawn or chew, you're using your TMJ. And then when you add in subconscious use where you're clenching or grinding through the day and for some people there's a there's a condition called bruxism which is where you're actually doing those things at night and you're overloading those structures and the muscles around the jaw really subconsciously it can be incredibly challenging to treat and and sort of influence that system when it becomes a subconscious response to stress Mm. or other systems in the body Phoebe, the the TMJ, well, it's like it's like the size of a pea, yeah, that joint. It's it's pretty bloody small. It's bigger than you think it is. Really? So, um, hmm. yeah. So it it sits up kind of near your ears, and everyone can actually have a feel of it. So if you take your index fingers and you pop them just underneath the top of your cheekbones, and then you open and close your jaw like you're going to do a big yawn, you'll actually feel the two condyles of your joints start to move. All right. All right. And basically, it's called a hinge joint. It's designed delightfully to be able to move. We have lots of different types of joints in Mm -hmm. our body, but this particular one is designed to allow the sort of joint surfaces to hinge open and close. And there is a little bit of forward and and lateral translation that is allowed in the joint space as well. Mm -hmm. So so just... um... Look, our panel is desperate to ask you lots of questions, but I've just got to come in here. What sort of um, syndromes happen when the TMJ ain't working properly? So there's lots of different things. There's I sort of break them down. You've got conditions where the joint structure itself isn't working well. So Mm -hmm. there's a small cartilaginous disc that sits in the joint space. So if the joint has been had trauma or the disc is not working you can get subluxations of the joint those are sort of your more bony conditions and often they relate to a limitation in terms of the range of movement in the jaw Mm -hmm. where the jaw is stuck Mm -hmm. or it's not able to open to its full range Mm -hmm. other conditions can be more along the lines of the muscles so Mm -hmm. um, you've got a whole bunch of muscles that influence how the jaw works and 
other things that sort of refer to it. So your jaw can refer to your cervical spine and your cervical spine can refer to your jaw. Also the muscles of your head. So things like you've got muscles that actually sit above your ears and, and move the muscles of the face. They actually also inf influence how the jaw works. So if it's a, I don't think I've ever seen a condition where it's just purely one thing. Often mm -hmm. if there's some joint dysfunction, then the muscles get tight and so you treat that and that allows you to work on the joint. And reversely, I don't think I've ever seen, oh, it's this one particular muscle that's the issue. Mm -hmm. Often it's it's kind of a culmination of things. And mm -hmm. so depending on where the sort of, it's chicken and egg, mm -hmm. you know, do you, is it the muscles that are the issue or is it it's the, the joint? joint yeah. And that's my job as the detective to try and figure out what the source of the issue is mm. and to come up with an appropriate solution. Dr. G-Spot here. Thank you, Phoebe. This is such an interesting show. And I this is the one show where I wish we had video to our audience because I'm seeing some really wacky and comical jaw movements um, mm. just for our listeners at home. Dr. Malpractice, I wish I'd got screenshots. Um, and I'm so Phoebe, glad you didn't. I, <laughs> I, I actually did. And I think uh, Nurse Effie Penn is too. They'll, they'll be on socials later for our audience. I wanted to ask Phoebe, I'm so glad you said that you've seen this, um, I suppose, TMJ issues along with pelvic issues, because I thought I was the only health professional seeing those two in the same people. And so I wanted to give you the chance to just talk a little bit more about your pelvic work that you do too. Yeah, it's... um. Look, it's they're conditions that I think we're starting to really understand how much there's sort of a class of conditions that are linked with a whole other thing that we could spend a whole other show talking about, which is central sensitization, where the brain becomes more aware of things um, and is therefore more prone to react to them. The thing I think about is fundamentally where you know we're evolutionary beings, so your body is linked in terms of protecting its important structures. It it thinks about oh. genitals as being a really important structure because you need to be able to reproduce, mm -hmm. but also you need to be able to defecate and urinate mm -hmm. to be alive. Also, fundamentally for us, eating is fundamentally mm -hmm. important. If you're not taking in sustenance, then you're not mm -hmm. actually going to survive. So I think there are particular structures which the body prioritizes and therefore is more aware of because of that need. And uh, so Ergo, you see people who have had trauma or pain and obviously that's going to affect both from what you were saying, both yeah. ends in different ways, but often at the same time. Yeah, look, it's not always a part and parcel, but mm. often you do have occasions where someone's gone through a really traumatic experience. Mm. And in the pelvic floor world, that can be of sexual nature and it can be completely unrelated. Trauma is whatever is affecting the person. It doesn't mm. have to be particularly related to the structure that's presenting mm. with mm. Um, problems. Mm. And when you've got pelvic floor dysfunction, every now and then you do actually see that people have this kind of overall side of stress and it's relating into their body in different mm, areas mm. and one of the common sites is the jaw mm. so if it isn't a person that's stressed your exercises might be very helpful plus some support from psychologists and gps and people like um, dr g spot would you agree yeah absolutely i work in a multidisciplinary team i cross refer to dentists and a whole bunch of like 
um, speech pathologists if I think that there's a, like a linguistical issue that's going on. Um, and also pain therapists are incredibly mm. important. It's and, and psychologists, there is not enough of them. And if there are people listening who are thinking about going down that pathway, we're desperate for you, please come and help us. Because I think we really don't understand pain to its full nature. We haven't grasped how to manage it. So mm. really helping people deal with it is something that is so fundamentally rewarding if you can actually change it. Do you know, recently going through a pain in the jaw episode myself, it, what struck me was that, you know, if you've got a broken arm or you've, you've got a limp, people can see that you've got a, a, something that hurts. But if you've got pain, it's, it's like you just look the same. Like, how does anybody know that you're in excruciating pain? And um, it's, it's one of those things where, you th- where you know, I was thinking, hey, 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 you know, I'm really in pain here, but people were just treating me the same, you know? And thankfully I got some physiotherapy and it all worked out okay and it wasn't chronic. But I, I, it brought to mind how people with chronic pain, it's not, it's not just the physical, it's the emotional, it's the sociological, it's so many different things that are, that are, that are going on. And um, we should actually do it. Well, I don't think we've done a chronic pain show, have we? Yes, we have. Have we? We have. Oh, okay. We, have. we should do it again because yeah. there's so much to it. Yeah, and there's always new developments in treatments and getting people off opioids. and COVID. Yeah, yeah, that's a big yeah. issue it's at the moment. It's a big issue. Yeah. Phoebe, we've just really only scratched the surface um, of, of you know, what you do and some of the, the fundamental sort of theories behind that. Um, tell me, is there any particular advice you can give to people in the 30 seconds you've got remaining about how to look after your jaw, your TMJ? Look, I'd say if you notice that you're getting consistent pain there, get some help, whether it be from talking to a dentist or coming and talking to a TMJ physio. There's often things we can do to intervene, and if we can't fix it, we can make it more comfortable. So that's always a good thing to start with. Fantastic stuff. Thank you so much, Phoebe Kippen, physiotherapist, Thank you so much, Dr. David Weisenfeld, for coming on our show. He's a professor of head and neck surgery, facio-maxillary surgery at uh, the Royal Melbourne and uh, the VCCCC. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.